Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 285 and my conversation with percussionist with the New World Symphony in Miami and member of the Pathos Trio and Excelsius Percussion Quartet, Marcelina Suhotska. We'll get back to Marcelina shortly. First up, how are you all doing? You okay? Are you hanging in there? Are you on break? Am I jealous? Yes, maybe. We're at a very busy time here at Mizzou with lots of recitals, marching Mizzou leadership interviews, faculty job searches, committee work, plus basketball. It's NCAA tourney time for both the men and women. It's exciting and it's exhausting. So hang in there. All right, that's enough. That's enough of me. Let's get to Marcelina. I'm meeting Marcelina Suhotska for the first time in this interview, and it was great to get to chat with her. Marcelina is extremely active as a percussionist, not only with the New World Symphony, where she's finishing up her final year with the organization, but with her work with her two percussion chamber groups, Pathos and Excelsius. While being a percussionist is one part of Marcelina's journey, the immigration story of her and her family is another Marcelina grew up for part of her life in her native Poland, and she and her family moved to Chicago when she was in elementary school. There's a lot to admire here of both her story and her drive, and we discuss a lot of that here, along with her time studying at the Manhattan School of Music in New York City. We get to that and a lot more in this interview. One final note before we start. There were some weird audio delays and other noises that were occurring when this was being recorded, so my apologies if there are some odd-sounding noises or delays that happen in this interview. But all right, here we go. We recorded this interview over Zoom on March 1st, 2022, and it begins right now. Marcelina, give me a summation of your percussion activities, responsibilities as they are right now. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Marcelina Suhoska, and I'm a percussionist at the New World Symphony right now. Week to week, it really depends on what we're playing. So we do a wide range of music um, from very classic orchestral playing to some chamber playing and occasionally even solo playing. Outside of uh, my main gig here at the New World Symphony, I perform with um, orchestras around the country, and so that requires me to basically fill in for any percussionist. Um, so that's something also that I do. And then as as well as that, I also do a lot of chamber playing. So I'm part of um, some chamber ensembles like the Pathos Trio based out of New York City, as well as Excelsis Percussion. How, how, what year are you into your time in New World? I'm in my third year. So this will be my final year at the New World Symphony. Is that exciting? Is that nerve-wracking? How are you feeling? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is um, definitely slightly nerve-wracking to be at the end of my time here. However, I feel like I'm a sort of hopeless optimist, and I always just kind of, you know, um, hope for the best. And I know things that are meant to be are meant to be, and things will just kind of work out, um, whether it's exactly how I envision them or not. Um, as we know, life... Um, does not look like a straight line at all. Certainly my life has not played out that way, 
but I think it's just a matter of um, perseverance and hard work. And I think if you are a good person and work really hard, something's going to work out for you. It might not be the exact thing, you know, that you originally set out to do. Lord knows my vision of what I want to do has changed um, since, you know, the past five, ten years even. So, yeah, I'm like uh, very open to what my life looks like after this. If this is your third year, that means that your first year was COVID year, right? No. So technically, I've been here four years. Okay. My first year was the full year. It was very normal. My second year was when this stuff started happening. I think it was at March, I believe. Mm -hmm. We're right at the two-year point here. Yeah, my my second year. And so, unfortunately, I did lose some time. um, And I will... Unfortunately, I get back. Um, I feel like, not to sound woe is me, but I feel like my generation really uh, did not get the, what's it called? Good end of the stick? I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that expression. Sure. Um, I yeah, I mean, yeah, we got like two years eaten up of auditions. I mean, I don't, I, I don't mean that we didn't progress. I think a lot of us were, you know, uh, doing a lot of stuff during this, but when there's no job prospects, that is huge. And I don't think a lot of, if any other generation can kind of say that they went through this. So um, it is what it is, but, you know, we have to move on and, and keep going. New World's a three-year contract. Very uh, rarely they give like an extra fourth year, but they considered the year that they gave us due to COVID as kind of the extra year this time. You definitely, there were definitely people that were your colleagues who were probably about to leave and or were coming in so what was that hazy period like for new world to just try to figure out the next step so i think we kind of took things as they came as many organizations did certainly we did not know that was gonna take this long um to get to any semblance of normal and of course people handled the different ways i would say new world um edged on the side of caution and safety and so um our like initial year, I would say, um, of the you know COVID, we really reduced ensemble size. Um, during this time, um, I didn't really have much to do, so I just put on a solo recital actually um, last year, and um, I thought that was that would be a fun use of time. I mean, especially when you come to my age, like when you're doing all this orchestral playing, it's really hard to find the time to get to put on a solo recital, uh, especially one where you get to kind of craft it from start to finish. Like you're not in school. And especially when I was in school, it all had to be kind of verified by my professors. And if anything, they kind of chose half the program. So it was kind of fun to assemble my own from start to finish. But um, in terms of people coming and going, I mean, we've had the same percussion section for the most part. Uh, I mean, we have a new member this year, Joe, but um, we've been the, kind of the same core. Um, the only thing that changed during the pandemic was our timpanist. So um, we, yeah, we kind of been sticking it out together, and we we all came in. The three of us came in at the same time, so I'm really close with the other two members. They're losing basically a whole section. It sounds like this year. Correct. We will have three openings. Wow. Well, tell me about the process of just getting, what was the audition process like for New World? 
So for me, I auditioned for the New World Symphony several times. Okay. I actually even auditioned before I was technically eligible just to get the experience, and I had never taken a professional audition, so I thought this was as close as it was going to be. Although New World, it is a little bit different because they do weigh not so much personality. It's almost just like your willingness to engage with audiences and the community because that is a huge part of your time here. So there's a lot of community outreach and... Um, program design, uh, things of that nature. And so they are looking for someone who's maybe not just like an excerpt robot, but someone who's maybe maybe a little bit more well-rounded than that. So <clears throat> for me, yeah, I think it was like an in-person audition here. I think other instruments don't necessarily have to do that, but we had to fly down here and uh, it was like two rounds, I think. It wasn't like, I think it was two-round audition. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, very, very high level, and um, I think everybody here is so, so deserving, and even people that were are in finals are all deserving to be here, so, um, yeah, it's tough, and, I mean, if you just look at the audition circuit, there's just so many talented players out there, and I feel like for New World, it's, it's no different. Do they expect you, I'm curious, on that level, are they expecting you to like be um, kind of out front with the outreach, like you're leading a lot of it. Are they expecting you to just kind of be part of an ensemble that does stuff? What, what's kind of the nature of that part? I think they're honestly just trying to gauge interest. You know, I don't want to speak for them, but this is, is this is just like, you know, what my opinion is of what they're kind of looking for. Just someone who's just generally interested and acknowledges the fact that it's important because there are, there are people out there that are like, I just absolutely don't want to do this ever. I don't think it's important. I just want to play music and leave me alone. Right. Um, which is one way of approaching it, but um, I, I certainly don't agree with that. You're doing that group and your, your uh, chamber groups are, are both of them, the two that you mentioned based in New York? Correct. I'm the only member of the ensemble that is in Miami. Um, how that happened was obviously I, I formed them while I was in school, while I was in uh, Manhattan. And because I moved to Florida, I basically um, said, I'm, you know, I'm still interested in playing. If you'll still have me, it's just going to be a little bit more um, inconvenient. But so far, it's been totally fine. It's just something that we have to schedule in. And for example, two weeks from now, my, uh, the Pathos Trio is going to be uh, performing at the New World Center. So that will be really exciting for us. Um, it's our first live performance in like over two years. So. It's really exciting because we've had a lot of projects during the pandemic. We've put out quite a few videos online featured on uh, Epic Verse and um, a couple other websites I'm blanking on. But it'll, it'll be exciting to finally like present it to a live audience and just kind of gauge how people take it. Putting us, putting us out there and getting some live uh, recordings of us. You know, with the pandemic, you, you, you mentioned kind of the solo recital portion, but at that point, how much were you um, aware or doing with the electronic and video stuff prior to the pandemic? I have some like, basics, basic experience doing a video and audio recording. Um, I think I feel like it's just a part of sometimes audition taking. You have to make tapes, you know, whether it's for summer festival when you're younger to or orchestras. So it's something that I've always been doing, but I think the pandemic forced me to kind of get a little bit more creative with it because, let's face it, nobody wants to sit there and watch just like one 
view of you playing whatever it could be the most incredible thing but nowadays people are so visual so they need more like active shots and just different angles and things like that so it's been really cool to see everybody explore this and become kind of multifaceted artists and so for pathos anyway we um collaborated with evan chapman on um our videos i think pretty much all of them um, and he's just amazing to work with, and we look forward to working with him in the future. He is a composer of one of our pieces, actually. Talk about, I mean, talk about, like, a well-rounded musician. I just have so much respect for that guy and his team. On my own, when I, when I record videos, it's, like, it's nowhere near his visions and stuff as what I do with my chamber groups, but um, definitely inspiring. Um, so it's something um, that, yeah, we've been working on. The quartet and the trio were they formed at the same time with different, uh, or were they formed at different times? But they, what would kind of, I'm curious about, like, did they have a a mission or a plan right from the get go that you were forming these groups? My first group I'm a part of is the Excelsis Percussion Quartet, and it's an all female percussion quartet. We are the first one um, to exist, and I think that was kind of our purpose was just to just to have an all-girls group. I mean, it was just something that um, we thought would be interesting and, and important. It was all started by Mariana Ramirez, and she's a Mexican-American percussionist living in New York. So she kind of brought us all together. Some of us knew each other, but some of us didn't. And so she was just kind of like the combining force that got us all together. And that was formed like early on in my undergrad. So I had already been kind of doing this stuff and even in school I was premiering a lot of composers work so this was something that I just assumed was part of what you do um I mean looking at my teachers they performed a lot of new compositions they gave a lot of premieres and for me that's something that yeah something that you do and it's you never know where your relationships with composers will take you and so for Pathos Trio similarly Felix was kind of the combining force so Felix reached out to me like, just over the internet, you know, wrote to me like, oh, hi, I'm moving down to New York. Do you want to, like, sight-read some duets together? And I was like, sure, you know. And this was in my master's, I think. So um, definitely Excelsis was first and Pathos was second. Love both groups dearly um, and look forward to what we do in the future. Yeah. When Excelsis <laughs> was being formed... And now it's like you said, uh, Mariana is the kind of the leading force here, but it's true. They're like no all female quartets, but it's also that there are very rarely are, are women in any of these groups, these chamber groups. And so how much mm -hmm. were you like aware of that kind of, of the situation we're walking into to just form this group? It was something obviously that was a part of our decision making and getting the members together was that we were going to have a you know, just a diverse group of women. I mean, I'm from Poland, Mariana's Mexican, Aya is Japanese, and our one of our first members is um, French-Canadian, but now we have a new member, Britain Renee. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that we were all kind of like international, sort of like Spice Girls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... I mean, it was something that, you know, we, but we we were conscious of, but also at the same time, we've always felt welcome in this field. I mean, certainly we felt really like kind of taken under the wings um, by so percussion 
they've certainly been mentors to us and even to Pathos Trio. It's just like those guys are just so giving with their time and are never like too big to, you know, kind of give advice and, and help younger groups. Certainly that's, if anything, part of their mission, which I really respect and hope to do the same one day. Actually, one thing again with Excelsius, is there a, a push for the group to um, to play music of certain groups of composers too, aside from it just being an all-female group? Right. Um, and in our past, we have had a call for scores. So we had a composition kind of competition where people... Um, sent in different works and we kind of sat there and listened to everything and um we picked kind of our top choices and premiered it in new york city at the players theater um now i feel like we are not so much shifting gears because we've already had these kinds of projects um with our bjork medleys like we wanted to play music that um is I, I really kind of I hate some of these words. I feel like it's we need new words for this, but like accessible. I mean, oh, I don't really, I don't really agree with that. But for lack of a better word, that. Um, but also just like kind of genre bending type of music because I do find that there isn't a you know kind of saturated amount of um, like quartet commissions by existing composers and. We do definitely have interest in doing that, but we we are also just as equally, if not more, interested in um, kind of arrangements of works that can cross over. So for me, like Bjork is a great example because her her music is very modern and you know in its own right, it's um, very virtuosic and it really lays well on some of our instruments, which is why that was the first composer we thought of. And now we are in the process, it's very exciting, of um, commissioning people to arrange other works by uh, some pop, I mean, pop is also a terrible word for that, but for more popular artists. Um, and so we're actually even looking at this um, jazz-ish kind of group called Bad, Bad, Not Good. Okay. And they write some tremendous um, music that is so, like, applicable and lays well on percussion instruments and is a super groovy um stuff so very excited and looking forward to that so i was going to go back to um to new world what's what is the i know it's it's hard to even say what typical is <laughs> at this point but what is what has been the in the more normal years what has been the the normal performance schedule and, re and rehearsal schedule for that group today we had rehearsal in the morning and that's um typical like 10 to 1 rehearsal Occasionally we have a double rehearsal, so that would be 10 to 12.30 and then like 2 to 4.30 or something like that. Um, and so that would be kind of a longer day. Um, so for me, I would show up to rehearsal early or to the hall early, I mean, and warm up and then potentially have to set up the stage. Though our stage crew moves kind of the bigger instruments, but we have to assemble all the small ones. So, for example, if it's like a movie concert, there's like a billion instruments on stage. But yeah, so then we have a rehearsal, a little lunch break, and then another rehearsal, potentially. Um, and then, I mean, if I'm uh, preparing for something, which is kind of all the time, <laughs> either audition or concert, like outside of New World, then I am at the hall for another few hours. 
I mean, it really depends. Sometimes I'm at the hall from eight in the morning until 10 at night. <laughs> like, it's very sad, but it's kind of the grind. <laughs> it's, it's a full-time job, Marcelina. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Does their season end in May, I guess, or is it like September to May or October to May or something like that? Yeah, so we start, I mean, early September, and then we go till early May, typically. Have you enjoyed living in Miami? Yeah, I mean, uh, I really like living in Miami. It's like nothing else. I mean, it's like kind of like living in Dubai or Vegas. It's because it's almost like a different country. It's like if, if I don't know, if like a family member of mine from Poland were to visit the U.S., I, I would, I mean, I would... I wouldn't say don't go to Miami, but I feel like it doesn't really symbolize so much of like the rest of the United States, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, culturally it's just different. I mean, there's like a huge Hispanic population, um, like some Haitians, and then like a ton of international people who are like not really here for a long time. So there's not a lot of like, I feel like, Amer- like a lot of like Americans, do you know, here. It's like, I can't um, that. Americans. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like, I don't know. Um, I know what you mean. It's, yeah, it's just, it's just a very like international, international town. Um, so it's like nothing else. I, I, I do like living. I mean, it's a little crazy, especially spring break here is just like, oh, kill me. It's just absolutely nuts, especially because I live just a few blocks from the hall, which is like right kind of downtown, like uh, South Beach anyway, mm-hmm. which is kind of where all those images of spring breakers are from. So, yeah, it's actually about right now is the season where things start to get crazy. But I mean, the weather is really, really hard to beat here. It's um, it's, it's it's like beautiful year round. And that was one of the benefits during the pandemic of being here is like, well, some people were like locked inside. We could like go on a walk and in December and, you know, I saw the sunshine, which was probably how I honestly survived through all of this. Um, being outside is so important to me. It's so it, that is the thing about about the place like Miami is just my, my wife and I love the beach just down, and we're in the middle of the country. So it's like anytime <laughs> we're on the coast. And like we um, or for like someone like you or our friends who are who are really close and they're just like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I needed to get to the need to see the water. I need to see the ocean and they can just go. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah, a multi-day yeah. affair to get out to the water. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a five minute walk to the beach from the hall. Right. Exactly. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that sounds that's you're right. That's like that's worth it. Just that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's back up. So you grew up, where in Poland did you grow up? I was born and raised in Białystok, Poland, and that's where the rest of my kind of family lineage is. So that's the northeast, kind of near Belarusian border. And I grew up and lived there until I was eight. And that's when we immigrated to the United States with my parents and my sister. So my parents brought me over here um, and we moved to Chicago. Do you have any family members in the arts? Yes, uh, my mom is a pianist. So my mom was classically trained and went to um, like the top conservatory in Poland, which is the Warsaw like Chopin Conservatory. This is a great school, especially for piano. And so she's very accomplished. Um, but like now her life is kind of more focused on teaching. And so she, she teaches music at a public school in Chicago and teaches privately. 
Yeah. But I mean, um, even besides that, there's members in my family that play instruments. They're not like so serious. Kind of, like, maybe they weren't like so thoroughly educated, like my my mother and I. Like my sister plays guitar. My dad plays like every instrument. He's like a total rocker kind of guy. <laughs> so he can like pick up a guitar and kind of play a song and drums and the bass and even some of my grandparents kind of played, but um. Just because of the tough tough circumstances, they grew up uh, in Poland during that time. Uh, not a lot of people had the freedom to pursue music. If you leave at eight, how much of your musical education have you gotten at this point prior to moving to the United States? I had just started like a few lessons before I went to the U.S. So I had been begging my mom for percussion lessons. I was begging, um, begging her for that and she really did not want me to play percussion <laughs> she wanted me to play the cello i feel like a lot there's like one of those instruments that everybody want uh wants the kid to play yeah and she even went as far as like setting up a lesson for me with uh one of the best cellists in the orchestra and you know she's really adamant and so the cellist like, okay you know i'll i'll do it but we'll like maybe I can do like a pedagogy class for my older kind of students and they can watch how to introduce the cello to, to a young child. I mean, I must have been like five years old at this time or something, maybe even younger. And they brought me this little cello and they brought me in the room and I was just like, what am I doing here? And they, they kind of gave me the instrument or they were like trying to even get me to hold it. And I turned to my mom, I'm like, mom, I thought I told you, I don't want to play this stupid cello. I want to play the drums. And my mom was just, like, mortified. She's mortified. You know, the cello teacher is also mortified because she's like, what, how am I supposed to teach this kid who has no interest in the cello? So, I mean, my mom learned her lesson. And that I was just sat on the drums. <laughs> Do you, I, this, is this a vivid memory in your, in your brain? Honestly, it's not as vivid to me as as my mom. Obviously, <laughs> it's just it's a little more unfortunate for her. I, I I was just like a really fiery kid growing up, and I I'm I mean to this day I guess I'm kind of a person that's a little bit more headstrong. I don't know what the word is. No, that's I think that's it. You know Severe. what you wanted, <laughs> and I know that you didn't you didn't grow up there um, uh, entirely. But what what is the music kind of academies or what? However, how is music taught? in Poland? So in Poland, uh, music is very much emphasized and encouraged. I mean, the arts are very, very much alive in my home country. Like, not, not even just music, there's like all kinds of other arts that are just huge, like traditional folk dance, um, kind of puppetry is huge. Like in my hometown, there's like this really famous puppetry theater. Um, it's kind of a big deal, and like I know in like the UK too. So. Anyways, so just in general, the arts are vibrant. I mean, the town where I grew up at the time had like only 200,000 population. So for, for them to have like a symphony orchestra and now an uh, opera company is kind of crazy, you know. There's some cities that size in America that don't have anywhere near that. Yes. And so the Philharmonic has attached to it like a public music school. So, for example, my day would be, like, I would spend half a day in, like, my public school, like, learning math and science and reading all that stuff. And then I would walk um, to music school. And so that was attached to the Philharmonic. It's like a whole building attached to it. 
it's amazing. Uh, it's like state funded sort of thing. And you learn theory at a very, very high level. I mean, we were doing dictation at age like six and seven. So you're writing down dictation at that age and learning scales, arpeggios and all these things from a very early age. And oftentimes on top of theory, you had like piano and another instrument or like guitar and another instrument. So people were like playing all kinds of stuff. A lot of, you know, a lot of people did ballet. So very, very much um, was just something that was just a part of what you did. I mean, I guess, you know, some kids chose to do sports, but even then, you know, a lot of people uh, selected the option. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds pretty cool, actually. Very cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, were, were you, did you do, I'm curious, did you do any, um, any dance with, with your early training? Yes, and there's somewhere out there, there's like a hilarious video of me doing ballet at age like four or five. And I was absolutely not interested in following any of the directions. I was just making up my own dances on the other side of the room. Nice. So I don't really know if you would consider that my ballet training, because <laughs> I really was just like doing my own thing. Um, I don't know, I had no business being there. It was just kind of like babysitting for my mom, maybe. I don't know. Sure. She's like, over here, go to this room, do something. Yes. Get your energy out and, uh, you know, <laughs> exactly. That's hilarious. That, so that video is somewhere, right? <laughs> I mean, my, my, no, not like on the internet. My God, sure. I hope. No, I think my parents have it somewhere. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. So what's the transition like to come to the United States, uh, for your family, for you? Like, what was that? That seems like a major deal. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, huge change. I mean, fortunately in Chicago, there's a really big Polish population. So we definitely had a community to kind of, you know, um, support us. But I mean, even so, I mean, when, when you move to a whole new country, you kind of start from scratch. Like nobody cared that my mom was this insanely accomplished, accomplished pianist. Like when she was applying for music, music teaching jobs, like, where's your, you know, a, B, and C. Like, I feel like in America, it's maybe a little bit too much where it's like, you need this certificate, and you need this certificate, and, blah, 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 and somehow that proves that you're a good teacher, which is totally not true. Um, <laughs> there's just, like, all these hoops she, she had to, you know, jump through, even though she had, like, incredible experience in Poland. Um, but, yeah, she, you know, she learned had to learn English very quickly. She knew some, but, you know, they had to definitely uh, step it up a notch to, you know, get, like, serious employment. Um, but yeah, they just had to, had to totally start from scratch. I mean, when we moved here, my, my grandma was here before us. She had kind of like scouted out America. She was like our, you know, um, discoverer. And, and she's the one that kind of recommended it to us, um, us to move. Not, you know, like Poland is by no means a third world country. Uh, if anything, it's like totally booming today. It was just like... It was just an opportunity, and we, you know, we, my parents, anyway, took a chance. And so, um, but when we moved, we moved into my like, my grandmother's, like, basement, and we were, like, living there. And then we, like, uh, then we got, like, a floor in her apartment building. Um, so it was, like, just, you know, totally from scratch. But, I mean, at the time, like, it did not hit me how crazy, you know, that was, because we had lived, like, very solid life in Poland and it was very much kind of start from the bottom 
um, type of thing for us. So, but at the time, like I thought I had totally normal childhood. I had no complaints, and I still don't. I learned English like in a matter of months. I think I was like probably just watching a lot of like Powerpuff Girls, and I learned English that way. <laughs> yeah. so that was that was my trick, anyway. Uh-huh. Thankfully, shortly after, I started uh, percussion lessons, seriously. Um, And that was through a program from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra called the Percussion Scholarship Program, the Percussion Scholarship Group. And that is under the education wing of the Chicago Symphony. So they sponsor it. And the two teachers there are Patsy Dash of the Chicago Symphony and her husband, Doug Waddell, from the Lyric Opera. So they were my primary teachers and teachers to this day um kind of like honestly like my american mom and dad because they they witnessed me like literally you know finishing learning english and me starting stick control till till now so i really owe them everything that i have um and that was a tremendous experience what was the age that you you do get into that program I think it um, was third grade, so I was at this point probably nine years old. We received flyers, basically, in our public school about it. Unfortunately, I received a little late. I was, like, past the deadline. So my mom, I actually had no idea what it was. I, like, brought the flyer back to my mom. Like, I don't really know what this is, but here, read it. And she was, like, literally her face turned, like, white. She's like, oh, my God, do you, not, do you understand what the Chicago Symphony is? And I was like, I don't know. It's like a band. Um <laughs> And she's like, this is crazy. And like, you know, these teachers are world class and you get free lessons till you go to college. Like what? That's insane. And But, you know, but the deadlines passed. So I don't know. I'm going to try calling them and like, you know, beg for them to take you. And that's exactly what she did. And, you know, thankfully they like, yeah, considered my application and I showed up and, and like the, the interview for it, they just kind of like gauge your interest, you know, like if, you know, a kid walks in, like, ah, me, 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 you know, they, they can kind of just, you can just kind of tell when a kid at least is like, oh my God, I want to do this so bad. And I love music. And I always just tap my foot to songs and stuff. And like the, there was a, there was an audition really. Cause nobody at that age knows what they're doing. Right. But I remember they did these kind of tests of like, you know, tapping along to, I was, I think it was Patsy at the time, like, uh, you know, tapping along to her, and then there was one test that it was like foot stomp and tapping. I was like, and if you could kind of like do that, that was like a huge marker for them. And I think I could like sort of do the, the kind of the offbeat thing. And so they took a chance on me. And after you get into the program, you go through a series of tests. I mean, this is like, this is like, it's almost like a mini percussion army. It's like, you know, you have to pass like, you have to play the first page of stick control for them, counting out loud, like one and two and three and four. And, um, and then there's like later on, I think there's Wilcox and later on there's like scales, like two mallet stuff. Then I think I feel like there's like a, probably like a four mallet test. And after, after that, um, like you can't get kicked out of the group really unless like you, um, I mean, I mean, I guess unless you want to leave, it's like, that's, that's when they kind of have really like, and, like, they go from sometimes, you know, 12, 15 people in, like, you know, the initial acceptance group down to, like, a couple. So they really, like, you know, it's it's almost like a, not like a reality show, but, you know, it's like they really, like, they like cut everybody off. So they're left with, like, you know, the final, like, great group of kids. 
And then, yeah, I mean, I remember I spent countless hours in that building. Like, I mean, I would be doing homework there. Um, the other members of the program, the other kids were like family. I mean, the other parents, like they, you know, a lot of times they would bring food for us all. Like, I mean, it's like everybody was just one big family. Um, so I really, I really have fond memories of that program. And there's nothing else like it in the country that I know of. It's absolutely unbelievable what they do. Yeah. Is that where, did Josh Jones go through that program? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he was like two years older than me, I think, from that group. Now, while that's all going on, are you in like the, are you in public school at this point um, while you're in, in Chicago? Yes, I was in public school this whole time. So were, were you doing all yes. their percussion stuff, um, like either marching band or anything there, or were you just focused on the, the stuff with the symphony? I didn't have music lessons, which is like, I feel like that's, an atrocity on its own. Like I didn't have any band, and uh, you know, I'm just saying like how sad it is. The state of like schools. I didn't have any music program until I went to high school, and that was just because it was like I had to test into this high school, and it was like because in, in Chicago that's how they do it. It's like you test in. I forget what it's called, but selective enrollment or something. I don't know. And that's the only only reason why I got like some band, like wind ensemble, like some like orchestra sort of experience but I really didn't get a lot of orchestral experience um, because I had to kind of choose whether I was going to be in the percussion scholarship group or go to the Chicago Youth Orchestra and for me I mean the training was just like at least on the percussion level just so much better the percussion scholarship group so I didn't have honestly much orchestral experience until I went to college and then um, like doing summer festivals kind of says a lot that it's, it's, it's very sad that you know Thankfully, I had a percussion scholarship group, but if I didn't, I I don't know if I'd be doing music. I really don't, because I didn't have that access in public school, which is really sad. You know, you, you had mentioned earlier about your kind of being very, um, very kind of like, like, you know what you want to do, uh, have, have wanted to do from in terms of like your own interests. Did you feel like that attitude was kind of like, you you were ba- that helped you basically achieve well at in the in the Chicago area as you're growing up. Yeah, you- yeah. I mean, yeah, that definitely affected a lot of things. I mean, uh, I feel like I was very self motivated, so my teacher really didn't have to like go out and find me, like recommend me solos. I would just come to my teacher, and be like, "Can I learn this? Can I learn this? Can I learn this?" And he'd be like, "Sure, sure." You know, he'd always encourage me, and if anything pushed me to do harder and harder and harder stuff. That was the thing. And then also just like competitions, I like found, I mean, of course, it was like kind of the all state stuff, uh, like, you know, competitions like that. I think there was like solo ones, I remember. Then I started doing the concerto competitions. I mean, I think I only, yeah, um, did like one or two, but um, I ended up being successful at the Chicago Symphony's youth, youth auditions, and that granted me... Um, Winning first prize in that granted me the ability to play with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, crazy, for the education concerts as kind of their, like, concerto. So I got to play the Capella Marimba concerto with them several times, and that was crazy. I mean, I was also happy because I got to, like, take off of school from that. I was, like, in high school, and I got to leave for a few days, and I was like, I'm sorry, I have to go play the Chicago Symphony. I I felt like I was on top of the world then, you know? (laughs) 
it's only been downhill. It's only been downhill since then. But um, <laughs> no, but at the time, I mean, like, I was like, this is it. I like, this is it. You know, I have made and, it. I mean, it's, it is, you know, it is an achievement. But I mean, at the time, I was like, this is this is it. Like, it doesn't get any higher than this. Um, and it, it was really cool to get to do that. I mean, like, such a life changing opportunity. Um, like, especially with my hometown orchestra that I look up to so much and I, you know, I grew up listening to. So it was, it was crazy experience. That's, all, no, that's amazing. I just, I just like the fact that you're like, I don't have to be here cause I'm playing with the Chicago symphony. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you imagine like you get to take off school for something like that? You're like, I'm so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. I definitely felt like way too cool for who I was. <laughs> I was such like a nerd in school too, so I'm like, oh gosh, cringe. <laughs> As you're in high school, I'm curious, were you involved in aside from the music aspect that we you discussed, were you involved in anything else? Did you do sports or student government or church or anything that was also filling out your time? I mean, I really was so focused on music and yeah, I feel like I once I am focused on something, I tend to have blinders on for better or for worse. But I mean, I did have some other activities I was into for for sure. For me, it was art. Mm. I love to draw and paint and do all kinds of like sculpture and like art projects and things I don't have really time to do now. But I used to be like constantly, constantly doodling, constantly writing on writing on my music and stuff like that. And, and like in that kind of stretch too, also just being fascinated by art in general. So I would go spend countless hours at art museums, um, just like by myself, nerding out uh, about art. So that's something that's like always been a part of me, and still is to this day. If I'm, you know, out playing with an orchestra, and this, that city has an art museum, that's like the first thing I do. I just like it's like um, something something that's important to me. I mean, so that I would say that. No, that, that's that's great. I hopefully you're not drawing on music that needs to be handed back in and erased. And, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's good, because that that's that that would be a problem. <laughs> um, no, that that's great. Uh, you know, what's funny is that that's I feel like I like because you're. Um, Maybe this gets into your your eye with like your Instagram account because there's so many photos of you where like it's very like you have like you with scenery or stuff like that where um, where I could kind of like now that you've explained this to me, I can kind of see like it feels like there's an art artistry to kind of even just very casual pictures of you uh, online. No, oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I've always been more visual person, so that would make sense. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. So how does it end up that you go to Manhattan School of Music for undergrad? I had applied to several different schools. Um, and at the time, I really was kind of torn between mainly two. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I had two allegiances. And it was, and they were very kind of polar opposite schools, if you know anything about them. I was torn between NEC and MSM. Mm. And... Um, I feel like, yeah, the teaching style is just entirely different there from what I know. I mean, I, I've taken lessons with the teachers at NEC, and I have so much respect for them. Um, but my, my, my 
uh, teachers um, in Chicago had stressed that like you really should go to MSM. Like just being in New York, it would be amazing. And they had a lot of respect for my um, teacher, Chris Lamb, because uh, my teacher Patsy went to school with him, and I think he was a few years um, older than her. And she she was like, "Oh, this guy is just like amazing. You have to go. You have to learn from him." And so, um, even though I selected MSM, I still had like taken lessons. I would go and take lessons in Boston and certainly look up to the, to the playing there. But yeah, that was the choice that I'd made. And I think, um, also what really helped was, um, getting a full ride to school, oh, yeah. being an immigrant. Like that was something that was very necessary. And so, yeah, I, um, definitely, um, really felt lucky to get the offer of a full ride to MSM and really made the choice even more clear. Yeah, I really um, enjoyed my time there. I mean, clearly I stayed there for my master's, which not a lot of people you know, tend to do. They tend to like go somewhere else for their master's, but I, um, I chose to stay and really um, look back at my time there as an extremely like, formative time. The way they teach there is, doesn't produce kind of the same player. Like if you look back at, you know, the past, I don't know, a hundred MSM grads. I mean, there's people who are metal drummers. There's people who are playing on Broadway. There's people who play in orchestras. There's people who are timpanists, assistant timpanists. I mean, a soloist. That's what I loved about it because I was like, you know, I mean, I, I was pretty set on doing or orchestral percussion, but I mean, looking at my kind of my career now, it is kind of a little bit varied and diverse. And that style of teaching really resonated with me because you really, especially nowadays, you really have to be a multifaceted artist and really open to make it in this business. And um, even if you end up playing an orchestra, I mean, week after week, even just in your world symphony, I mean, there's times where I'm learning a hand drum instrument. I got to like kind of connect my knowledge that my you know knowledge that I have from Latin African drumming and connected like I don't know to an Indian instrument or something and that's something that if you are maybe um in a school that doesn't emphasize that as much I could see you running into problems so things like that or drum set or jazz playing I've I had to do all of these things at the New World Symphony and if anything in the pro professional field you have to do that even more um so so I think it was just a, a really good um, school for me. I feel like the teaching style is awesome because, like I said, it doesn't churn out kind of robots and everybody really sounds slightly different, you know? Uh, again, I don't want to like, speak for my teachers, but I think, you know, there's a huge emphasis on you kind of finding the answer for yourself because everybody's like, everybody's body's different, but my teacher would be like, how would you make this sound? And he would play and he would have me look at him and then he'd have me like close my eyes and listen to him because we learn different ways and like we learn we learn through different um, learning modalities. So some people are visual, some people are auditory, um, kinesthetic, you know, like you have to feel it. Sometimes you have to use different ones. Like I, of course, I'm generally a visual person, but there are times if I just like look at someone play, honestly, it's harder for me to gauge how do I how do I make it sound like them. So sometimes I go off of hearing. Sometimes I go off of what does it look like they feels like to them. So there's a lot of that. I really appreciated my time there. Yeah, that sounds like it. It's a I like that concept where 
you're asking their teachers asking you to create a sound that so that you can figure out what your body does to make that sound and then making it clear that that's going to work versus I like you right. said versus making it like clones of <laughs> of of the teachers it's like everyone's becoming the best mm-hmm. version of themselves correct exactly yeah and you know of course is there a time where it is useful just like for someone especially like if you're like really you know playing at a high level and you're super polished Sometimes, yeah, sometimes you do just need to hear, can you just play that a little softer? And that's fine. But I think in your formative years, if all you hear is just do the sticking, just use these pair of symbols for a rock too, and you'll, you'll always play it well. I completely disagree. I don't think that makes a good musician because if someone were to give you another symbol part to Rachmaninoff and they're like, what would you do there? They'd be like, uh, and you just regurgitate what you were always taught and you don't really think for yourself and you don't know why. Like, why are you making these choices? Um, like my teacher would grill me, like, why are you using, like, why are you using that stick? Why would you use, why would you suddenly change your stroke just because you're playing on a, you know, say marimba or zaphone? Why are you doing that? Um, or, 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 or something like that. So I really, it was like a lot of this. It was so much of, Sorry, I'm pointing to my head. There's like a lot of thinking, you know, involved. Yeah. Did did they make you like, um, like, like explain it, then do it kind of stuff in your, in your own voice? Yeah. I mean, mean, if I look, if I look across the different teachers I had, I mean, my primary teachers were Chris Duncan and she, and I remember in like she lessons, she'd be like, where is your phrase for this bottling out? We do so much Bach together. She's like, where is your phrase? Where does the phrase end? Or she would have me sing it so many times. Um, she, we'd, be, we'd be doing so much singing. And then I remember for Duncan's lessons, he really would stress, like, what's happening in the orchestra here? Because, you know, as, as the tip is, you should know the score as well as the conductor. And it's not better. You better, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he'd be like, what's going on here? What instrument, what instrument's playing with you? So why would you play so loud? So why would you play so soft? Whatever, stuff like that. It's just, yeah, it's just really tremendous. And I hope to be half as good as teachers as they, as they are. So what was the schedule like there in terms of who you took lessons from, how long they were, how, how was it, how was all that planned out? So earlier on, earlier on in your undergrad, you're very much spread across the different teachers. They were kind of just spread out, I feel like quite evenly. So you would pretty much alternate. Like you would have lesson with Chris, then Duncan, then Shi'i. Although she, um, with Shi'i Wu, she obviously had to fly in. So I mean, I guess technically she's not there as often. But I mean, I saw her many times in the semester. So um, that woman's just like her like current location is just plane, airplane, like airplane. <laughs> like if you want to ask for her address, you probably provide an airplane address because she's, I don't, I don't know when she's home. It's crazy. But yeah, so I was pretty much spread across that. And then we'd also have visiting artists. We'd kind of have like every week, every Friday, we have this kind of, we call a Friday class and it would be anywhere just from, you know, like Chris masterclass to she, you know, doing, all kinds of classes. It wasn't just necessarily just Bach or marimba. She, I remember some of the best classes she gave were like how to practice. <laughs> just like how to practice. Like no one really teaches like that, I feel like, or not a lot of people do. I mean, now nowadays, thankfully, we're talking about this stuff more. But she would just be like, 
Why, like, what would you use the metronome for? In like, what way should you use the metronome? Like, should you always just have the metronome on down, 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 or should you have it on every other beat or blah blah blah? Like, how do you play metronome games with yourself? All kinds of things that, um, yeah, I see people doing more and more now. Um, or we would have, you know, like. Uh, hand drum players come, uh, Broadway players, drum set players, visiting timpanists. You know, if, if there was a timpanist in town with an orchestra, thankfully they would, you know, have them down and give us classes. So it was really awesome. I mean, uh, so on top of the teachers we already had, we'd have a lot of other kind of guests sharing their knowledge. Were there ensemble requirements, uh, like large ensemble stuff that you had to do, or percussion ensemble that was part of it? Yes, yes. So. You were assigned to one of like two orca orchestras. So MSM is pretty small school. So there was like the Philharmonia and then the symphony. Symphony was technically like the better one. There was like a brass ensemble concerts, which were kind of like the wind ensemble sort of. And that was led by Mark Gould, I remember. And then we had uh, twice a year percussion ensemble concerts. So we'd prepare like half a semester for uh, percussion ensemble concert, and that was usually directed by Jeffrey Malarski at the time. Um, and then we'd have one, no, twice a year marimba concert, so everybody played a marimba solo. So you were busy, you were just like, and on top of that, you uh, you you were encouraged to do a recital almost every year if you could. If you could do a recital every year, like freshman, sophomore, junior, uh, senior, you'd have to do a recital. So you were just like slammed with work, but that's the, that's the thing is like, you know, if you if you got into MSM, you kind of, you know, like you it's like you kind of know what you're asking for. Like this is just the kind of school. It's not the kind of school where it's like, you walk in and you're like, okay, what do you want to play? Which is you know totally works for some people. And I've seen people be super successful with like very kind of like lax teacher teaching, but that's just that's just very different pace than MSMs, which is very like I think I said almost like kind of like. A, you know, the percussion scholarship program, very much like almost like army like style. But it sounds like you, that works for you or has worked. Yeah. For yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really like kind of that fast paced sort of very intense uh, workshop kind of vibe of, of learning. And I mean, not to say that I didn't have times where like I could kind of, you know, let loose and relax. I mean, I kind of did that by just attending concerts. So I saw the New York Philharmonic play like a billion times. I saw the Met a few times. Um, and then honestly, I just saw a lot of jazz. Um, I, I would go to see jazz concerts and big band concerts as much as I could because that really um, can inform your playing in a lot of ways. At what point do you decide to not only just go, go for a master's, but to stay there to do it? I came... To that decision because I felt like I had some unfinished business. I feel like there was some, still some stones that were left unturned um, in my playing, not like their teaching, in my playing that I, I just, I just felt like you know we had already had such a good, great, good relationship that I don't know why, why, why necessarily change it. Um, and I ha also had my like ensembles as well in New York, so. It was just kind of like a, even more of a reason to stay. Um, and at the same time, like I said, like I took a lot of lessons with people 
um, I would, you know, go fly for and play for people. And to this day, I I play for people all the time that may, may not exactly play exactly like my teachers do or totally don't even play like my teachers do um, because, A, you're never done learning. And then, B, like, um, you should never feel like you're too good to learn can always keep learning whether it's whether it's even from like a percussionist or even a musician like i'm sure you could try a ted talk and i could like totally just change your mind and blow your mind about something else and like or you can connect it to music i think we're never done learning and um i certainly i i certainly love to learn from people that maybe may not think like me or play anywhere near like me agree a million percent and I, uh, I, you made me think of the last time I gave a recital, um, the person I was playing the that I did some pieces with was our cellist, who's incredible. And I had her listen to like my solo marimba stuff and she gave incredible notes. And I was like, I just need to have you around all the time. Like, cause, <laughs> but yeah. this, like it's, but the, it gets your point about if you get other musicians in the room with you, they're going to hear stuff that you're like, Oh, I hadn't even no idea. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes it's a lot of the stuff that's like we think is the biggest deal. It's like, you know, our four stroke roughs and all these things like these like these musicians do not care. They could not hear if you didn't execute your four stroke rough. I mean, like, I mean, I'm not saying all of them, but like it's just not it's just not it's not about that for them. And so that's really also changed how I think about music is like the stuff that we stress about is really it's not. It's also it's not a big part of the music, first of all, mm -hmm. you know, like there's so much more going on usually when we're playing anyway, like let's say excerpts. Yeah. But even just like a solo, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of comments that, you know, people get from non-percussionists like just do more, like do more. And then you're like, cause you're like, oh, if I, if I just hit all these notes and let's say like marimbology, if I just hit one wrong note, it's, I'd rather play really, you know, like, you know, say blah, blah, blah. But that's just totally not the case. I remember one of the best like lessons I ever got was from an oboe teacher who was visiting um, New World, and I had played like a Bach for him, and he like really like kind of grilled me on kind of connecting lines. Like, and the reason why I think it was kind of disjointed. I, I know, I know, I know the reason why it was disjointed was because of just like my, you know, the sticking and like you know the way it laid out. And he's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, I don't care. And I was like, oh, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I don't care that it's hard or it's awkward. He's like, no one cares. You just have to do it. Like, I need you to connect this line. I don't care what you have to do. So, and for me, that was like, oh my God. Like, the important thing is, is the musical line. And I, you know, like, and it sounds so simple, but um, things like that, um, that's what really separates, you know, kind of the drummers from, like, the, you know, like a musician. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't care. <laughs> blah, blah. It's hard. Brutal. Brutal. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. I feel like I know the answer to this, but did you like living in New York? In, in Manhattan, I should say, specifically. Yeah. I mean, it, it was an amazing place to live. I feel like, especially when you're young, just because it's exciting, there's always something happening. There's so much of the arts present and all like very just a diverse range of the arts 
And so I, yeah, like I said, I saw a lot of concerts. Um, I saw, I went to a lot of art museums there. I mean, the best art museums. I feel like some of them are in in, in New York. Which certainly. ones are your favorite? Because um, I grew up in New York. I'm curious. Oh, uh, I, I mean, I do love just MoMA and mm-hmm. the Met. Mm-hmm. But there was also a lot of kind of pop up. Um, I remember museums. I can't think of them right now. There was I remember, I remember there was a pop up MoMA did in like. Long Island City or something, Queens, yeah. and it was um, James Terrell, and that was the first time I ever saw a Terrell art piece. If you ever, if you don't know, like you really, you really should try to go see an, um, one of his art pieces because it's an experience. He creates these like spaces. A lot of them are. Um, I really, again, I hate to reduce his artwork to like a couple words, but yeah, kind of like an infinite space, and he plays with color. And um, I think works by him like, really remind me of, like, maybe not specific music pieces, but music for sure. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, like, works by Kandinsky that are so much inspired and literally just look like music. Yeah. Um, certainly, or, like, Paul Klee, um, mm-hmm. artists like that. Anyways, um, for some reason, somehow, like, that visual art, I don't know. I don't know how, but it does inspire me, you know, for sure, as a, as a musician. Insane amount of talent in New York really was inspiring. I mean, one of the, like, top kind of busiest freelancers in New York City, Joe Tompkins, like, you know, he, mm-hmm. we all know his snare drum solos, but just him as a performer, um, you know, often, oftentimes I would see him at playing with the New York Philharmonic. And, I mean, he could be playing, like, the silliest little small, like, triangle part, but it, just the way he played it, it was like he could be playing those very simple notes. I was like, that's the best thing I ever heard. And I'm like, why does it sound so good? I remember just because I was like, I mean, I still am, but like, especially then, I was like such a good, curious kind of mindset, like student mindset. I would be like, what is he doing? Like, what, you know, what sticks is he using? What, what was he doing? Like, what's the angle? Like, why, you know, I was just, just so curious. Um, and so many players like that inspired me in, in New York City. I was thinking if, if you had gone to like the Frick or the Whitney. Or some of the uh, those other smaller, lesser known museums. Mm-hmm. Yes, I certainly. Yeah, that's now that you reminded me. Yeah, I've been to both. Yeah, no, it's they're, they're incredible. I I would love I love when, um, and it, this is any art museum, but like when you get into the like if you particularly if it's set up so that it's uh, like you go through the years and you get closer to the present as you kind of get further. And then you get to the, like the stuff from like the 1940s or something. And you're just like, it just, I don't know for me, this may be the same thing for you. It just fires you up. You're just like, Oh, like this is making me kind of mad, but I'm like, I'm excited. And yeah, absolutely. I, I, yeah. <laughs> so that sounds great. And you still have it, but you haven't mentioned the food. How's How about the food in, in New York? I mean, I was a poor college student. Sure, so yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say I went to all these, you know, michelin places at all but i did find like some lots of great cheap food in new york yeah i know there's definitely a bunch of great hole in the walls um so and i I think like new york also made me expand my kind of food palette a little bit Mm -hmm. but yeah like living there i mean the asian food is amazing um i had a lot of indian food um oh one hole in the wall now i think of is like this deli it's like this super like not as unassuming spot it's a punjabi like indian deli it's called punjabi deli i think 
and when you go in, there's like a lot of you know like men in the turbans, and I remember sometimes like. I would be the only person not in a turban there. I was like, oh, this is this is awesome. I'm like, I'm in it. And But I remember they would have food. Like, they would serve it on, like, styrofoam plate. But it was, like, the best food ever. And it was, like, $5 or something for, like, this huge plate. So I loved going there. Um, and just, like, the people working there were just so sweet. Because um, I'd be like, what what is... I don't even know what that is. <laughs> He's like, that's this. And they were really nice. Um but yeah, there's certainly really amazing food. But I mean, there were times I lived off of Dunkin' Donuts, coffee, and peanut butter and jelly bagels from the deli. Like that was my diet. I don't know how I survived, but mm-hmm. yeah, here we are. Yeah, there we are. You did it. <laughs> I'm curious. You you had said very early when in our in our talking, you said something to the degree of. You weren't sure this was, I don't know if you remember saying this, but you, you said like you weren't sure this was the path that that you were taking or, or ended up taking. I mean, what, what exactly did you mean by that? A career in the orchestral field and something, you know, I, I just really loved doing. Um, and I think what drew me to it was it was not a strong suit of mine. Um, it was like a challenge. Uh, when I was in the percussion scholarship group, I was just doing all this solo stuff. Like I said, I really didn't have a lot of orchestral experience. So I went, when I went to like my first summer festival, I think the teachers were even like, do you want to do orchestral percussion? Like they were kind of like, you don't sound like an orchestral percussionist. And I was like, Ooh, uh, <laughs> that's some like pretty harsh words to say. I think they even like called my teacher. They're like, is she serious about this? And it's not like I wasn't like, pra- like I was practicing, but it is, it's just a different, it's just a different you know, set of kind of tools, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, I guess like the fact that I was not like super good at it made me want to do it more. Cause I'm like, okay, like, so I'm kind of good at the solo stuff. I know, you know, I'm, I can kind of do that, but I'm not so good at this. So let me just like go for it. And so um, over the course of, you know, the next few years after I kind of had gotten that wake up call from the, First summer festival, I was like, okay, I'm gonna like I need to take this seriously. I want to learn how to play in a large ensemble. I want to learn how how that works. I want to learn how to play the timpani in an ensemble. And so over the next few years, then to this day, you know, I'm working on I'm working on what that is. Uh, but no, I mean like, and I do find that sometimes when people like kind of look kind of look at what I do, they're like, what are you like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what do you want to do? <laughs> Like, they kind of get confused because I do play, like, you know, a lot of solo chamber stuff. I'm involved in, like, some social media projects, things like that. But I, that's the thing. It's like, I don't necessarily find that that's, like, distracting. I don't, I really, I really don't. I, um, I just, I so disagree with that. I don't think at all doing other projects is distracting from, like, maybe your main focus. Like, if you're a soloist, if you go play with an orchestra for a week, that can only help you. Because <laughs> what are you doing? With, let's say when if you're a concerto soloist, you're playing with an orchestra. So things like so things of that nature, I I um, totally disagree. That I mean, of course, if you know if you just want to do one thing and you have no interest in anything else, fine. But I I would say definitely like if you're a teacher, don't shame your students for having a little bit 
of like a broader, you know, broader view of things or just different, like, you know, several interests at the same time. Of course, like if, if, you know, the baseline is not there, let's say like, maybe they are spread too thin. That's one thing. But if someone just legitimately loves doing multiple things at once and they're, you know, working on it and somewhat successful, then I, yeah, I don't see why not. So, um, I'm a bit of an alien in that regards, but I like what I do. Um, I don't know. I don't know that if you're an alien in that regard. I mean, I certainly see the value in being, it's not even, it's like some of it's being well-rounded. So that's one part of it. That's not, you're not just focused on one thing, but it's also shows that you have other interests, which I think is, I think it's critical, honestly, to just, mm. me, just like mental health and well-being. Do, do, mm. do, do you see it in Absolutely. that way about kind of being really important for your own is it part of your mental health to just like to do all of these different things within the field? Totally. Totally. Um, I totally think that is like, now of course, not only does it shape me as an artist to play, you know, train my music to play this, to play, play that. Um, but I mean, nothing's better than like, you know, let's say you're prank for audition. You've been like setting Porgy and Kiji to, you know, all this extent. And you've been literally playing the same things over and over and over again nothing is better than like you go to the marimba and like you learn a new solo or like you just kind of like play some Bach chorales or even not even the marimba like sit down at the piano and just like play something else because I mean especially if you're doing the orchestral route I'm sorry like there's really <laughs> you can drive yourself crazy playing some of these things of course it's of course they're musical excerpts but they're excerpts and it's like sometimes five measures of something and it's like i mean how much can you really drill that you know i think um there's a quote by a pianist like you know you should practice more than four hours a day because like how i think I, i'm totally paraphrasing but like you know if you practice more than four hours a day how do you know what you're playing because music is about life and if you don't go out and do life um how are you supposed to know what you're playing so i totally agree with that you know it's like, how are you supposed to play the most heartbreaking ballad if you've never been in love, or have you never like, or or thought about it? I mean, maybe you don't you don't have to be in love, but maybe you can read a book about love or something like that. So, not sure where I was going with that, but <laughs> no, I that's that's great. I, I I couldn't agree more. And I think about it in terms of if you when you have gotten to. Uh, like if you've revisited, uh, we'll take Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, when you've gotten to revisit, if you've gotten to revisit some of the stuff, you're going to come at that work at a different, because you're just at a different point in your life. It's going to sound differently than it did if you played it when you were 19 mm -hmm. versus, you know, however now, because you've lived. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, Yeah. I, I, that's part of the reason I don't do you enjoy see like I I, I also I enjoy going back and, and looking at pieces I've played in the past just because I know that my point of view has changed mm -hmm. and it can show up absolutely yeah yeah so. yeah I mean I feel the same way yeah. yeah I finish up with a segment called random ask questions okay all right <laughs> All right. So first question, Marcelina, is what's an issue in either percuss percussion education, percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? 
Kind of what we were talking about earlier, the churning out of robots. Um, I feel like it's less so the case that fortunately, um, less creative education. So kind of what I was talking to you earlier about um, asking, like posing students more questions than just feeding them the answers and letting them get to the answer. Yeah, that, that, that one's really huge and really gets under my skin. And kind of what I was saying, like teachers maybe shaming their students for having broad interests. Like fortunately, I didn't experience that so much, but I know people that have. So those things I think are huge. Yeah. That sometimes comes up with like drum set as a, as a, as an alt, as an, a path. And like, it can be looked down upon. Yep. Yeah, totally. All right. Next question. Take this wherever you want to go. Um, being a percussionist who is also female identifying woman, your thoughts, just leave it open. I'm the same as anyone else. Um, body slightly different, but I don't really regard myself any differently. Um, certainly, uh, there's some uh, inescapable parts about my body, for sure. I have tiny hands, for example. Um, <laughs> things like that. So there's some anatomical things that, you know, just can't escape. But no, I'm the same as anybody else. Um, same emotions, same same kind of struggle, same journey. Um, obviously, there are times when uh, I, you know, I don't know. We, we, all, we all go through crap. Sometimes you wonder why you go through certain things and if it has anything to do with that. But, um, I don't know. We all kind of struggle and got to keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Okay. Uh, next questions. These are going to get a little odder. But um, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Uh, fortunately, not to my face. Fortunately and unfortunately, um, I don't know if I've heard one. Um, I know when I get tired, uh, or inebriated, I, my Polish accent really comes out. So I'm sure there are some out there of that. <laughs> could you, could you just demonstrate just for fun? Oh, no, 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 no. No, no. You can have someone else on the show for that. Okay. You'll have to get in touch with someone else and see if they could do a demonstration. Oh, God. <laughs> What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Impractical? Uh, um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I had to pick. I mean, I guess a gown. You can just fall over yourself, or just like heels in general. Like, who invented it? Like, who invented that? Uh huh. Why? Why do we decide that that is a good idea? But we have to do it. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe those two things. Sure. Women's clothing is generally impractical. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Uh, yes. Oh, okay. I, like, I guess if I can think of one thing, is a lot of our clothes don't have pockets. And I think, um, if anything, that's that's where if there's discrimination, it's in the pocket industry. You know, okay. the pocket industry is discriminatory. They think that we don't need pockets. It's it's really messed up. I'm coming for you, pocket industry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have to tell you this story. Um, uh, 
we were, I was trying to think of where, I think we were somewhere, my wife and I were somewhere in, I want to say Italy and someone, she, she sees someone uh, come up in a, in a dress that has like pockets kind of like around the hip area or something. And my wife is like, that is the greatest dress I've ever seen. And, um, and so happened, she, we happened to run into this person at some like outs and you would know this from Europe, like just at an outside restaurant, just in this, basically in the street. And she happens to see her. And, she, and I was like, you have to go ask this woman where she got her dress. Cause I know it's, you're dying to do this. And she does. <sighs> and she finds out it's from a, um, it was from a, a maker, uh, a clothing person in New York city that was the name of it was Paracelso. And, and this person, and so my wife found this, it's like this hole in the wall place because I'm from New York. So we will go into the city when I visit my folks and she found the person and she, we went back there like multiple times and she found the dress and she found like, and it was, it was all about the pockets. <laughs> yeah. What do I t- see? What did I tell you? <laughs> Marcelina is coming for you. Big pocket. That's where we're, that's where, where this is going. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, another question. What is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Um, I think a terrible movie is one that doesn't make you think. It doesn't leave, doesn't li- really change your worldview. Me personally, like, I can't watch like these dumb blockbusters with like, what is it? Transformers, like explosion. I call it like explosion, explosions and boobs. It's like, <laughs> There's some hot chick and then there's some explosions. Like, okay, wow, so so unbelievably inventive. Um, it's just like that stuff I hate. So I, I, honestly, a good movie is anyone that like teaches you, like, or shows you um, like someone else's kind, like, like a lets you live in someone's shoes that you would never think of, um, like experiencing. I don't know. Um, just like saw a movie. What was it? So Bradley Cooper, Nightmare Alley. And it's oh, like, yeah. I would never think of, yeah. yeah, I would never think of like circus people and their struggles and how they even get to there or whatever. And like, I don't know, I'm not saying it's like, again, it's not like you watch a movie about one thing and you think it's like everybody's, you know, perception. Um, God forbid, like that terrible whiplash movie. Um, right. Stuff like that. <laughs> you know, um, like, yeah, movies that kind of like take you in, like show you maybe it's a different culture or just a different like occupation. Um, and I don't know. I think to me, uh, I don't know. It's not, it's not like it would stop war, but like it would definitely make you kind of more empathetic. Like, Oh, like people, you never know what someone's struggling with. Um, things like that. You know, I, I love movies like that, that they don't have to be like necessarily like so sentimental, but you know, it's just like a different experience and ideally with some kind of freaking story and character development. I mean, nowadays, again, like it's, like I said, it's boobs and explosions. Like, Oh my God, I hate it. I hate it. It's hard, so hard to find a good movie nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. No, that nightmare. I was good. I, I, for exactly those reasons. Um, what is a favorite book? I remember one that left like an impression on me was um, Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, kind of, yeah, it was like a classic, I think it was a classic tale of like immigration, which I really, re- which re- really resonated with me. Um, but I honestly read a lot of 
these self-helpy type books. Mm-hmm. So for me, a book that really changed my worldview was um, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. Mm. I know that's like such a, like everybody knows at least of that book, but that one was really huge for me. The Four Agreements, uh, uh, what is it? Creative Imagination. Books like that, that kind of like are to better yourself or whatever, <laughs> things like this. I really like, I, know, I guess one fi- fiction, but not fiction. Uh, 1984, I really like. Um, mm-hmm. A Great Warning for all of us. Um, those are ones that kind of come into my mind. You know, when someone asks you, like, what's your favorite movie and you can't think of anything, that, that that's like me all the time. I, <laughs> like, I have a million answers and I also have zero answers. Right. Well, you'll, once we, once we hang up, we'll, you'll have like four of them, like, right, right in a row. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I got you. Um, do you have, I'm curious, because of your growing up both year in Poland and in Chicago, do you have a sports fandom? Oh, no. I mean, uh, I mean, I'll, will I watch sports? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if it's like if Chicago, one of the teams is in like some kind of playoff, will I watch? Yes. But no, I'm not a sports person. Not really. <laughs> it's interesting to me. It's fascinating. I have so much respect for it, but yeah. I'm I, I'm just too busy to keep up. And yeah. I don't know, like I have other interests. Sure. Yeah, I got you. Um, where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Oh, so many places. I want to go to so many places. I love traveling, but, um, so a couple would be like Southeast Asia, obviously. Um, New Zealand would be cool. Iceland. I mean, there's so many parts of Europe I haven't seen and I'm European. <laughs> it's like shameful. Um, certainly I do have interest in like, some Middle Eastern countries. I mean, it would be really cool also just to, like, go to Israel. And then uh, I'd really like to go to Patagonia in South Amer- uh, South America. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, like, the uh, area I know what it's called. And then Alaska. Mm-hmm. Alaska, for sure. And, like, Banff, that, that mm-hmm. kind of area. I love to hike. I mean, my boyfriend loves to hike, so um, certainly uh, plan to do more of that. Yeah, I'm curious, how much of you asked me one, States. right? And I gave you like 17. It's fine. It's fine. No, it's cool. No, I, I, I like, I like hearing about all of them. Um, how much of the United States have you, have you seen? Like, have you gotten Way to travel out more west? Than Europe. I mean, like I've, okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've seen so much of America. Um, honestly, because my parents from an early age, they took us on these road trips. They just like shoved us in the van mm-hmm. and we'd be like going to Grand Canyon, the Badlands. So I've been, I think, to at least South Dakota, Minnesota. I mean, if I have to name them all, it's a lot. Like Wisconsin, obviously Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, California, Oregon, Washington, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, uh, Colorado, Montana, Texas, Florida. I mean, I've I've probably been to like at least thirty. Honestly, I've been so lucky. Yeah. Um, through music, but a lot of it, honestly, just through wandering around. <laughs> no, that's, that's summer that's, festivals and such. Yeah, that's great. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? I feel like most of them are embarrassing, if anything. <laughs> um, I mean, one that comes to mind that I like can't get out of my head and will. Like forever teach me a lesson was like in school 
Mm-hmm. Again, like I had no orchestral experience. So I was like a disaster a lot of the time. But um, there was a piece we were playing with cowbell on it, and the cowbell part was like huge. I forget what it was. Maybe like a, I don't know if it was a Copeland or what. Well, I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. But um, cowbell part was huge, and I like it's kind of kind of coming up in like the next few letter rehearsal mm-hmm. letters, and I realized I look at the trap stand, and the cowbell's not on it. And I think I just assumed, like, if I left it after rehearsal, it would still be on there for the concert. Never assume anything. And fortunately, just because of my school, like, um, the way that it's set up, there, like, the storage cabinet was just behind us. So I literally just, like, kind of looked back. I'm like, is it there? Is it there? And I realized I had, like, fallen. So I, like, got it off the floor. And as about, as, as about like, the entrance is coming up, and I was like, bang, bang. <laughs> Do you but, appear? Like, so didn't, yeah, it it didn't like end in disaster, but it definitely was like, oof, okay, never never assume anything is gonna be on stage. Just assume the worst. So I mean that could have ended so much worse. Like what if the cowboy was like, I don't know, not at the hall, what if it was somewhere else? Oh, there was one piece that I think about in school. It was one of those like uh student composer pieces. It was absolutely wild it was like a piano concerto sort of piano solo with like um you know chamber orchestra and the pianist at one point like ripped off his shirt crawled inside the piano and it was like slamming glass bottles into the piano and like screaming at the top of his lungs (laughs) and i was like i remember being like an undergrad i'm like this is this is new music this this is absolutely wild (laughs) What is going on? And that person is going to be yelled at by the piano faculty, the piano technician. <laughs> I don't know how that was loud. I'm really looking back. I'm like, who okayed any of this? <laughs> All right. And Marcelina, last question. What one piece of art could be movies, music, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Viking Gore Olafsson's piano album of him playing um, Bach. And uh, specifically, he has a transcription of an organ, Bach's organ sonata, and he transcribes it for piano. And it's one of the most otherworldly things I've ever heard. I mean, anytime I listen to Bach, I feel like I'm transported somewhere else. But specifically the album and that, piece the organ sonata and the way viking gore plays is um i mean he's like yeah he's obviously an up-and-coming pianist and he's unbelievable um but he's also very multifaceted so a lot of his like kind of music videos like instead of him just kind of playing in some fancy hall it's a lot of like visual art um i really recommend if you haven't seen it like check out his kind of music videos because he really tells the story, and it's kind of a little bit more, for lack of a better word, kind of contemporary and modern. Um, and the, yeah, that that honestly, any of any of his albums, but especially his Bach album, is just like so transformative. Is is this relatively new? The, these these releases. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just came out with a Mozart album, which is also tremendous. But um, so that's his latest one. But one that I just still can't get over is the Bach one. It's just like un- unreal. 
a total pleasure getting the chance to talk to Marcelina. I wish her the best of luck with the rest of her time at New World, with her chamber groups, and whatever is next for her. Stay tuned and best of luck. This week's rave is the 2010 novel The Thousand Autumns of Jacob DeZoet, written by David Mitchell. The author David Mitchell is likely best known for writing the 2004 novel Cloud Atlas, which was turned into a film a few years later. But he also wrote the works Black Swan Green, Number Nine Dream, The Bone Clocks, and a few others. I was suggested to read this book through my longtime college friend, Rebecca Philby, someone I tend to check in with whenever we get a chance to read a lot of great novels. The plot follows as this. The aforementioned Jacob de Zoet is a member of a Dutch company when the Dutch were business leaders across the globe, and he lands, along with many others from there, in an area of Japan and follows his life there over a period of a number of years, from the late 1700s to the early 1800s. The Thousand Autumns is a reference to how many Japanese folks at the time referred to their country, the place of a thousand autumns. This work fits into the historical fiction genre, though in addendums to the end of the novel, the author makes it clear he's not really comfortable with that term or may not even really know what it means. But as is the author's style, he puts in an enormous amount of research and seemingly believable world building into the novel. One aspect I was particularly impressed with was his way with dialogue. Frequently, Mitchell incorporates a lot of inner thoughts that are occurring amongst the outward thoughts that are being spoken in various conversations. He gives you a real-time sense of one's feelings while they are going through various situations. Additionally, the scene setting is pretty incredible. Mitchell has a painter's eye for details of rooms, clothes, walls, books, steps, nature, you name it, he portrays it very well. More importantly, while this book is nearly 500 pages long, it is actually a very easy and fast-moving read. Mitchell does this by, even though he's giving you such painterly detail, he's not getting you bogged down in the details. They are fitting right in with a lot of the dialogue that is going on. It is well-paced and it keeps your attention and if you're in the mood for this kind of work, for sure, check out The Thousand Autumns of Jacob DeZoet by David Mitchell, wherever books are available. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.